And we're, I think we're going to move towards using a Huey, which is a lot larger helicopter. You can fly two or three thousand pounds at once, doing them in big loads and then kind of satelliting them out. And that. I, was, I refer to it as like the, the, the mothership and then the X-wing fighters kind of going off with the smaller loads in there. Welcome to Trail Effect. I am your host, Josh Blum. Trail Effect is a show that dives into the stories behind trails, the communities that embrace trails, and the people who rely on trails as a way of life. The goal of this show is to turn the stories you will hear from our guests into useful knowledge that can be applied to your community while providing some entertaining and inspirational content. Guests on Trail Effect include trail builders, board members, community leaders, volunteers, and regular people who really enjoy trails. If you're new to the Trail Effect podcast, check out our ever-expanding library of episodes. We have a second episode this week, and it's a good one. Episode 111 features Christine Bile, co-owner of Interior Trails based out of Healy, Alaska. Christine offers up another incredible conversation on trail building, as she spent many years working on federal trail crews in Glacier National Park, Chugash National Forest, and Denali National Park before founding Interior Trails with her husband Gabe. Christine also spent a handful of years as a board member for the Professional Trail Builders Association, and she is an accomplished author. I'd like to take a moment to thank all the listeners and guests who have taken the time to share the Trail Effect episodes on their social media accounts such as Facebook, Instagram, and LinkedIn, along with taking Trail Effect in their posts. This has helped more listeners find the Trail Effect podcast. Please keep up all the sharing, commenting, and tagging of Trail Effect. I'd also like to thank all the listeners who have signed up to be supporters of Trail Effect through Patreon. These actions mean a lot to me. Now onto the Trail Effect with Christine Bile. Here we are today on Trail Effect. I have Christine Bile, who is the owner of Interior Trails, which is located near Healy, Alaska. And honestly, I had to look to see where Healy was, and it literally is like in the middle of Alaska. So it is in the interior of Alaska. She is also the author of multiple books, but one of them being a book called Dirt Work, which is specific to the world of trail building and what she, her world of trail building. And, and it's kind of a, a memoir to trail building itself. And so how's it going today, Christine? Very well. Thanks. Thanks, Josh, for having me. This is awesome because I, this podcast has helped me meet so many new people and this world of trail building is just, it's pretty special. And I really appreciate the opportunity to get your story out because your story, I can almost guarantee is going to be a lot different than everyone else's. <laughs> Maybe. Yeah. Sometimes everybody feels that way though, right? <laughs> yeah. Well, I've never yeah. had an, an Alaskan trail builder on here, so that's going to be different oh, in itself. Cool. Yeah. I've never had an author that I'm aware of. At least nobody that talked about it. So that's also <laughs> different. I know. I know a lot of podcasts are you know based on authors talking about their books and that, but yeah. that's not a common thing in the world of trails and trail building. And so there's a there's a first there as well. So yeah, well, you'll have to have Troy Scott Parker on sometime. He's a he's got a book or two out about kind of technical trails stuff more. But yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, the books that I know of are like the, I guess the, almost the book that's like the Kleenex version of trail building at this point. And I probably will get crap for saying that, but that's Imba's guide to sweet single track. That's, mm -hmm. you know, I think there's still drawings from that referenced in like every trail plan ever at this yeah, point. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And that one in lightly on the land, the, um, Berkby book from through the SCA channels, those two, actually the Imba trail book, the forest service manual trails manual is a skinny one, you know, and the, um, Lightly on the land, we always used to joke that like 
you, if you got sent on a project back when I worked for the park service, you'd take those three with you. So that if you didn't know how to do whatever they were going to tell you you had to do, you could figure it out in your tent at night and be like dog earing the pages of like, okay, here's how they do it. And here's how they do it. And kind of put it all together. So yeah, my book doesn't add much to that. uh, It's not so much about the technicalities of like, you know, how do you batter a rock wall or how do you tune a carburetor or whatever? It's more about the kind of the subculture of being a trail builder and what that was like for me coming up in it, as well as I think things that people from a lot of different backgrounds can recognize our our funny little pride. You didn't go into tuning carburetors at all? (laughs) Not in my, well, I mean, actually, no, you're you're right. Actually, I did. There is a little tiny part about, about carburetor tuning, about how, when you can listen from afar to someone else's saw and be like, Oh no, 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 your idol's too low or whatever. (laughs) So uh, yeah, but it's it's for the most part not the focus isn't technical even though some stuff comes up just in the telling you know you can't talk about life on the trail for decades without getting a little bit on side tracks about how you fix stuff and kind of what things go wrong and all that that's one of my favorite part of trails actually is just the fly by the seat of your pants like educate yourself as much as you can learn from people who taught you and then you get out there and you're just like all right what can I take with what I know and what I've tried and what didn't work and hope for a good solution? And it's just constantly interesting to me. So even though you start kind of, you know, you have to start with a baseline of knowledge from a book or a manual or a teacher, there's also something really fun about just getting to try shit. <laughs> well, with that, let's get into this and let's learn about how you got into the world of trail building because that was quite a while ago. And from what I could tell, it had to do with Going to Glacial National Glacier National Park. Yeah, yep. It was uh it's quite a while is a good way to describe it. I think my first trail season was 1996. And I had one year off in there for, you know, federal budget cuts kind of thing. But pretty much since then I've been in the field every season. And I had, oh, I think 10 or 12 seasons with federal agencies, the Park Service in Glacier. And now in Denali more recently, and then in Cordova on the Forest Service District for Chugach for a season. And then I've been in the private sector with my husband, Gabe, for the last mm, 15, 16 years, something like that. So it's to the point where I kind of lose track of exact the exact chronology. But um, yeah, it's been a good long run, a couple and a half decades. And uh, I still weirdly love it. Every year, I always think, you know maybe this will be it for, you know, the path will diverge and I'll do something else. And, and then every year, Gabe and I always joke that one of the packers in Glacier always used to say when everybody at the end of the year would season would talk about what they were going to do next year and they weren't coming back or whatever. And he'd always say, ah, you're not, you're not back until it's next year and you're not here. (laughs) He basically meant like, yeah, everybody says that in November. And then here you are hat in hand in April, ready to come back. So, so far. Well, let's, what drew you to trail building in the first place? Like what, what brought you up to Glacier and kind of sparked that interest in, in the world of trails? Um, you know, I often tell it as if it, it's kind of a combination of a total fluke and a completely natural fit that I just didn't really know about yet. <laughs> I mean, I was pretty on track to be uh, an academic, like all of my kind of career and I mean, uh, class and college prep and my degree and all that had prepared me for, you know, I I thought I might be a comparative literature or philosophy grad student. And I was, didn't even know what trail building was. (laughs) I grew up in urban Michigan on the Rust Rust Belt. And um, for folks who know Grand Rapids, Michigan is now 
a bit of a hot spot with, you know, single track development and um, rails to trails connectivity. And it's a pretty cool town with a bunch of microbreweries. And when I was that young, it was not that it was a pretty, you know, uninteresting flat um, ex furniture and kind of steel town that didn't have trail building even remotely on its radar. So anyway, I, after I finished college, I kind of on a lark, uh, my husband or my boyfriend at the time, Gabe, who's my husband now, um, we decided to move out to Western Montana and just try something totally different before I applied to grad school. I needed to take a year off. I was totally burned out and I kind of wanted to see, all right, what do I really want to do? Where do I want to go? Take the GRE, all that stuff. And we fell into trails job, kind of uh, a roommate of Gabe's was a trail dog in Glacier. And he was like, oh, you guys should put in for this. You know, we were doing a lot of exploring and learning how to ski and hiking all the trails around Missoula where we moved. And he was like, oh, you guys would love this. So we got on a crew and I just was completely drawn to it. And even though in some ways it seemed like a really strange fit, because I didn't have really any labor background to speak of, aside from being an avid, just outdoors person. And uh, I was a kid who was really interested in just being out. Like it was, you know, I was more comfortable outside than I was most other places socially. And, you know, in school, I was always kind of, I don't know, like, I, I didn't, wouldn't say I had trouble paying attention exactly, but I was always kind of looking out the window and like, you know, just kind of a outdoor drawn kid, puddles and bugs and rocks. And it's not like we had like a pump track or a ski hill or anything where I grew up, but I just wanted to be messing around outside building forts and, you know, playing Olympics and stuff like that. So to some degree, it was a totally natural fit that I found this job where I could be in my body and be working with a crew and in other ways, it was this totally weird sidetrack from thinking I was going to be a philosophy professor. So anyway, the first season in, I just totally fell in love with it. And it's hard to know exactly even what in particular. I mean, part of it was just a Midwestern moving to the West and falling in love with the Northern Rockies and being so blown away by just being able to explore that kind of terrain on under your own power. A huge part of it was the mentoring and uh, kind of the lineage of being a laborer in the Park Service tradition of the jack of all trades trail dog style um lineage and and uh and a huge part of it also was just kind of developing a confidence and competency and skills with my body because i had put a lot more effort into you know my my mind my brain my what i knew what i could do figure out whatever so complementing that with a with a really embodied and exciting and job connected to a lot of community it was almost like a couple different hooks that just really got me. And I kind of never looked back. I thought maybe at first it would be like, oh, this I'll just try this for a year before I go back to grad school. And then I did end up going back to grad school years later, probably almost 10 years later. But it was at that point, I was pretty firmly entrenched in the trails world. So it wasn't, it wasn't the lark anymore. <laughs> I think going from anywhere in the lower 48 up to Alaska for a lot of people, is a, it's, a, it's a pretty big journey, right? Mm-hmm. What was it that drew you to Alaska? Well, here's the funny split narrative again. It was actually graduate school. I uh, We had lived in Montana for, oh, I want to say maybe eight years. And I love that Western Montana is my heart's home. I mean, I I became a grown-up, an adult there. You know, I discovered my people and my my vocation. And it was a very formative and amazing landscape. But I also ha- have always had a little bit of an itch to see new places. And I particularly love the North. And so going from Michigan, 
migrating to Montana and then looking further north. I didn't have a real easy way to live in Canada. So I was like, oh, what would Alaska be like? And at that point, I had been thinking anyway, a little bit about getting a, a, going back to school and Alaska, it turned out University of Alaska Anchorage, I could apply without the GRE and, uh, you know, just kind of a, threw it out there and ended up getting in and to the program I wanted with financial aid as an incentive. And so I was like, all right, let's do it. Gabe and I decided to move north. And again, I don't know, this is a theme with me where I think, oh, this will be a nice little sidetrack. And then I'll move back to Montana and do whatever's next. And both of us just fell in love with it. It's a it's a really, um, it's just its own culture. Like when I moved there from Montana, a part of me, I, I would say expected it to be like, a, like Montana, only bigger, more wild or whatever, but it's just, it's not, it's nothing. The far North is nothing like anywhere else for good or ill. I mean, it has its own downsides and its own, you know, cultural and historical difficulties and its own, you know, um, economic and political frictions. So it's not at all like it's a utopia, but it was just kind of interesting to be like, yeah, this is not like something I knew only bigger. It's its own world. And uh, yeah, we've been up here almost 20 years now. So um, it's clearly a a good fit. (laughs) Yeah. And along that you founded Interior Trails. Yep. Yeah. What was the impetus of the foray from public service into the private sector? Um, It was interesting timing, to be honest. we had Gabe and I had both worked for the Park Service around the same length of time, about ten or eleven, eleven or twelve years, and um, I was purely seasonal at that point. Uh, he had 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 a term job for a few seasons, and I would say it was a combination of restlessness with um, working for an agency, just feeling like kind of want to just see what I can do on my own. Like, you know, what would it be like to just manage your own projects and make your own decisions and not have to take marching orders that sometimes seemed, you know, I mean, I, overall I had a great tenure with the park, so I don't, I don't mean to come off as complaining, but you know, there was kind of the overlay of a couple different personnel and kind of boredom and just an itch to try something new that all overlaid around the same time. And so I started up just kind of a trial balloon uh, on my own. I think it was in 2007 to see, oh, is there a niche for this here? You know, at that point, John Underwood of Happy Trails, who's a uh, PTBA member, and um, he'll probably come up later as well. He's a, a you know colleague and a friend and was the person who kind of um, showed us into the PTBA and introduced us to that world. But he was really one of the, at that point, was the only full-time dedicated um, trail builder. And he was really just kind of figuring it out too. So it wasn't that clear yet in Alaska. We were decades behind that lower 48 in planning and uh, and the kind of uh, projects of any scale with public funding coming to fruition. So I did a season of just kind of a couple projects that seemed like a pretty known quantity. A friend who was a, not, a nonprofit manager was like, we really desperately need someone to like rent a piece of equipment and put in this gravel cap trail with a couple bridges. And I was like, okay, I know how to do all that. Like, well, let's just start a little trial run business and try it. And it, we had a great time and the client was really happy and I really enjoyed it. And the next, by the next season, Gabe was ready to leave his um, more permanent job. So we kind of went all in and that was the year that the the big crash, the uh, everything fell apart, <laughs> uh, the great recession hit. So we were in this weird pickle of having just given up federal employment that was pretty steady and Gabe had benefits and all that for like a complete wild hair that who knew whether it would even 
pay the bills, let alone um, enable any sort of long-term financial uh, stability. So it was a bit odd timing. And, you know, if we had known, like, if we'd been able to see into the future, uh, probably a more cautious or sensible thing would have been to hold off. But at that point, we were kind of committed. And so we just went with it. And it actually ended up, the timing didn't end up being too bad. We had a few years that were pretty lean and just trying to figure out the world of contracting and how to put in bids that didn't cause you to eat your shirt in order to build your resume. And but you know, also a, a bit of money came through for, through different infrastructure and um, post uh, recession aid. So you know, we were able to pick up a few projects here and there that you know made it possible. And um, yeah, so after a few years of kind of learning the ropes and um, having some projects go really well and other ones realizing how we could do things better, uh, we decided it was worth uh, sticking to it. Yeah, seven and eight. Yeah, so yeah, been a while, long enough now that I think it. And I mean, it's been amazing to see the last that last decade and a half, how things have changed in trail building in Alaska has been pretty incredible. Like from early on, before any of us were PTBA members, it was really with John and then us, a a couple of other um, retired federal folks, guys who had been in design or um, uh, maintenance or whatever in the park who did more like kind of consulting. Mike Shields is one. Um, He's a mentor to many in the PTBA. He teaches classes every year. And we always call him our trails grandpa because he was like, you know, he's in his late seventies now and has just been a really available mentor to both John and us. And then other trail builders have kind of come and gone from um, from Alaska. Uh, Eddie's Eddie and Brian from um, Farmigan. They parted ways now. They were in Alaska for quite a while too, kind of after the initial startup. So at its height, I think there were maybe four of us, and then all started joining the PTBA. And then, you know, a couple of people have left the state since, and we're, we're really now to the point where we, we have so much work, like we're booked probably if we let ourselves a solid two seasons in advance, just with projects that people are desperate to have done. And um, it's, I couldn't have ever foreseen the kind of stability and just wide variety of projects that we have available now, which has been really cool. Yeah. I think that's a common theme in the trail building industry as a whole right now, both you know, obviously in, in Alaska, which this is all new to me. I've never, this is my first Alaska experience. <laughs> Virtually, I guess you could say too at that. Yeah. <laughs> but also in the lower 48, you know, and it's interesting that 2008 was your year because, you know, I I talked to Don Packard before this. Oh, nice. And then said the same thing that the recession, you know, she was in Colorado at the time and the recession kind of like changed the whole dynamic of the economy. And money wasn't flowing like it was prior to that. And that was actually what led her to, to go to North Dakota, hmm. you know, because money was still a thing in North Dakota with their, yeah. with their oil boom. Yeah, that's interesting. I didn't put together that that was the same timing for Don moving from kind of city and nonprofit trail building to the private sector. So, yeah, that was a <laughs> that was a kind of a gold mine era with with both good and ill like it had some real upsides, but it also, yeah, we always joke because we, we have had a, like a pro deal with Patagonia for years, starting when we were in Glacier, which a lot of trail people have. And, you know, they have the, they always refer to the sharp end. It's kind of their part of their Yvonne Chouinard's like philosophy of business owning, like taking from lead climbing to like, you know, how do you kind of keep yourself on the edge where you're taking risks, but you're still protected and all that. And so we always refer to like, yeah, we were like pretty far above our last piece when we started. <laughs> you want to talk about the sharp end? We were 
hanging it all out there in 2008, which was, you know, at times a real rush. And like anybody who's listening, who's a, a business owner knows, like there's some something incredibly satisfying about taking on something that you wonder, wow, is this, we're going to be able to pull this off <laughs> and then have it go really well. And there are also some, some pretty big stressors. So um, that, that was a, definitely a time that was full of all of the above for sure. With Interior Trails, do you guys have a certain specialty or area that you prefer to work in in terms of user groups or or even, I'm assuming you geographically are probably, I mean, Alaska's literally huge yeah, in, in all is. senses of the, ter- of the word. So yeah. I'm assuming that yep. some of that might be, you know, geographically based, but to where you, closer to where you are. But is there a, is there a certain specialty or user group that you kind of focus on? Because I'll be honest, like I've not, this is, this, like I said, this is my first Alaska experience. Yeah. Um, I would say that um, in Alaska, you, contractors end up working all over the state. I mean, the bulk of the the money and the jobs come out of the Anchorage and Matsu urban area, the Anchorage municipality, and then Matsu is like Wasilla and Palmer, which most people are familiar with because of Sarah Palin, but it's actually just, it's like more than half the state's population lives in those two uh, areas. So we end up working all over. I mean, we have had jobs from southeast to up north of Fairbanks, headed out towards the you know the North Slope on the Hall Road. Projects right in our own borough, you know, just a few minutes from home, and then other remote projects where we're, you know, out in the backcountry with helicopter logistics for eight to ten days at a time all summer. So it really varies, and that's part of what I really love about our business model in particular. We we didn't really go all in on any one type. We just, I think especially early on, John Underwood had already started his business and he came at it from the um, avid biker who wanted to figure out how to build bike trails. And so he pretty early on established a lot of competency and kind of investment in the like building with mountain bike volunteer groups. And so we specifically, when we started, we're like, okay, I think we've got to just be open to like whatever crosses our paths. And that has enabled us to have a lot of job diversity. We do everything from, you know, like last season, you might start out teaching an SCA chainsaw class, certifying, you know, 20-year-olds and how to run a saw, and then uh, building a helical pile boardwalk, a few hundred feet of that on a private campus, an existing client that we do in kind of a trail plan with. Then we might move up to our main project for the season. The last season or two has been a... um, $1.2 $1.2 million project, three season project building a long remote connector trail, kind of an alpine 16 mile route that connects to unconnected pieces up in the Chuga, uh, the foothills of the um, Telkitna Mountains and the uh, Alaska Range, huge Alaska Range views where we're like true backcountry stuff where we're having crews live in a, a camp for eight days at a time and all our, you know, plank walk materials are brought in by helicopter and do that for, you know, whatever, 10 weeks, 12 weeks of the season, that's kind of predictably alpine accessible. And then we have to come down from that and work on a gravel cap trail in town, do a layout for, a you know, a new bike system or work on a master plan or, you know, kind of whatever. Um, right now we're working on a, a couple different master plans. So those are really fun because you can kind of get in with a city or a, a landowner early and help them figure out, okay, like, what do we want? Like, the bikers want this and the hikers want this and the, you know, school district wants this and the like Audubon society wants this. And how do you balance like, you know, an Eagle's nest with a mountain bike flow trail and, and, uh, you know, 
whatever, like kayak campgrounds with, you know, people who are getting off a bus stop and hiking into a city park. And it's like a lot of Alaska parcels have a ton of variety in one spot and a lot of users who are pretty invested. So it can often be kind of a juggling act like it is everywhere. But I think in Alaska, especially because we are so, have had so little trail development. A lot of the trails up here are just inherited social trails, so-and-so's favorite fishing spot. And then, you know, it's gradually turned into everybody's favorite fishing spot. And now it gets so much use that it's not sustainable anymore. And so we're always juggling historic uses and season intensity where trails that are totally usable all for six months in the winter, dog sledding and, you know, hauling in supplies to remote homesteads and so on. And then in the winter, in the summer, they're completely impassable, like bogged up to your hips. So we have a lot of factors like that that just keep it all really interesting. And um, yeah, I've really enjoyed that. I, you know, we've thought sometimes like, oh, would we be better off just like committing, buy three pieces of equipment, go for this certain kind of job. Maybe it, it would be a little bit more predictable, but I really love the variety that we have in any given season. It's it's pretty, pretty awesome. You can go from, you know, an excavator for two weeks to hiking and laying out remote alpine trail with a clinometer for the next two weeks. and then. Never know what's next. So there's a bit of the kind of um, having to be flexible and shift gears a bit. Sometimes that has some inefficiencies with it or some logistical <laughs> uh, stressors. But in general, the variety I, I have really, really enjoyed. Well, you've brought up a tool twice that really has only came up in one of the, one other podcast specifically, and that tool has to do with logistics, and it is the helicopter. <laughs> Yeah. Let's talk about the helicopter a little bit, because I think that's something more listeners, you know, would probably find interesting in terms of like, how do you balance that? Because not only is it, I mean, it's a very expensive means of getting stuff in, right? And, yeah. And so the logistics of coordinating that kind of work has to be pretty uh, exciting. Yeah, uh, it is. It's it's exciting is a good word for it. Um, it it's requires a little bit of thinking outside the box, especially at first, because, you know, like I've like I've mentioned a few times, my formative backcountry time, trail crew time really came out of deep backcountry work in Glacier. I I mean, for years, probably six seasons there, I had never touched any piece of equipment other than a chainsaw. We didn't even really use power wheelbarrows. Like we were typically so far in or working with wilderness compliance to the degree that everything was handwork. And so I have a part of me that just defaults to thinking, oh, well, you just strap it on your pack and carry it. Like that's how you do it. It doesn't matter if it's a grip hoist or a punjar powerhead or whatever, like you just walk slower and you get it done. <laughs> so moving to a project, the uh, recent project that really pushed us in the direction of using more helicopter transport was, um, uh, it was a federal funding. The, pro- the client was a nonprofit, so it wasn't a, um, a public job per se, but we were required to play, pay Davis-Bacon wages. and. Um, so up here for a laborer of this whatever class and region, that was about a little over 60 bucks an hour. And so um, we're looking at the project and how much we have to get done and how much of a budget there is. And we're realizing that to pay people to walk in. Our, so our first hitch site on this project, the Curry Ridge project, was, I want to say, eight fairly rugged miles by trail. And then you got further and further away until you were 15 to 20 miles from a trailhead. So if you're paying laborers 60 bucks an hour to walk and then set up camp for, you know, three hours is a minimum. Okay, that's 180 bucks a person times three people, like you're really quickly approaching 
the exact same amount it costs for a Robinson 44, I think is the model we use the most. I'm really bad at pulling our 44, I think it is, at model numbers. I'm always like, I don't know, it's the mid-sized, whatever, but pretty sure it's a Robinson R44. It runs about 750 bucks an hour. And we could get three people in with all their supplies fresh in 45 minutes. So then they could start building trail. Whereas if we're paying them the same amount to walk in, they get there tired, they need transition, and we just walk half a day of building. I mean, it penciled out as a complete no-brainer with almost no second guessing. So that was kind of the the thing that pushed us in that direction to begin with, just a project that was remote enough. And then having a lot of plank walk with uh, you know, six treated six by sixes and then 12 foot rough cut four by twelve plank, which you know, you're not paying people to hike that in from a trailhead, even if it's only a mile in. So we had to get creative about mobilizing and have experimented with a couple of different things. Last year, we flung a lot more loads with the R44, which has about, a, oh, I think three or 400 pound max on a, on a long line below it. And we're, I think we're going to move towards using a Huey, which is a lot larger helicopter. You can fly two or 3,000 pounds at once, doing them in big loads and then kind of satelliting them up. And that. I, was, I refer to it as like the, the, the mothership and then the X-wing fighters kind of going off with the smaller loads from there. So it takes a little bit of a penciling out to figure out, you know, when, which thing is most um, efficient. And then sometimes, yeah, just the un, the unquantifiable efficiencies, like having a crew that's fresh and has two extra days per hit or 10 extra hours per hitch times 66 hours, six uh, laborers is, you know, that's adds up pretty fast to being 30 extra hours of work when you're on a tight project not only budget, but timeline, because our alpine, our season above tree line in Alaska is woefully short. We really have to maximize every 10 hour a day we can get. So that's kind of what the push was. And, you know, there are times where it kind of niggles where I'm like, oh man, remember, like, we have to tell our crew, like, you guys are getting soft. One of these days, we're just going to suck it up and pay you to hike in the whole way so that you remember what it used to be like, you know. (laughs) But overall, it just, it's been huge in helping move the project forward, a project that really, you know, on paper looked like it might not even be doable for what they had available and what we had to accomplish. And a knock on wood, our last season is this year. So we'll see. Hopefully we can wrap it all up um, in what, what we hope. But yeah, so we jokingly, once in a while, when we're flying in our helicopter and looking out at, you know, you're looking out at the whole Alaska range spread below you, it's like your commute is like other people's flight seeing vacation trip. And we joke that we're like the trail building 1% because we feel sort of like we're kind of upper echelons here but we still make up for it once we get on the ground we we uh, return to our dirtbag roots and <laughs> try to forget about the helicopter until we have to fly out well i was gonna say you know obviously you talked about the time lost and just and hiking in and and the wear that that brings with it on on your body and whatnot so just the morale of flying someone in like you just alluded to mm-hmm. has to increase productivity even if you're yeah. turning to your dirtbag roots Yep, it does. And it's interesting, actually, the figuring out the calculus of that, like there's some, there's some, um, okay, I'll back up a little bit. The trail building world that I came up in, in the mid nineties, working for the park service was almost unrecognizable to what the trail building world is like now. It was like, I've never been in the Marines, but it was like blue collar hazing, you know, like 
load the new person's pack full of rocks. If you didn't puke before you certain mile on a trail, you weren't trying or running with a chainsaw to try to stay ahead of the packers. Like, you know, run, you wouldn't shut your saw off between trees. Like people like, it was crazy. Like there were points at which there were injuries and that kind of culture wasn't going to last forever. But there, and I'm not trying to lionize that, like there were things that happened that shouldn't have. But just like the Marines, there was a kind of fun, like kind of bond that you build when you're all in, you're moving it all on the field, you're totally pushing it and you succeed as a crew by the end of this uh, week and you feel like you just knocked it out of the park. So it is kind of a delicate balance with like, we want to do what's the most efficient. There is a lot of morale in saving people from what feels like pointless labor, you know, like you want people to feel like their hours are being made the most of and their skills are taken seriously. On the other hand, there are times where just getting it done the hard way provides a really solid morale boost as well. So we're always trying to balance that where where we have to use, quote, the easy way because of logistics or cost. We still always try to build in And I mean, some of that you can't lose no matter what in trail building. There's always the weather, unexpected stuff, crappy soils, you know, rock work that doesn't go the way you thought. And there's a flood and something washes out. Like, it's not like trail building is ever a completely controlled environment where everything is happy and easy, even if you use a helicopter. But I've definitely found that the morale is great, works best when you have one eye toward making people feel valued and comfortable within the parameters of their task. And on the other hand, letting ourselves be uncomfortable and have to figure it out often enough that you don't feel like you lost the soul of what trail building is all about. Not that the soul is about being uncomfortable only, but you know what I'm getting at. (laughs) Yeah, for sure. Uh, You you kind of brought me into the next topic that I wanted to bring up, which is you alluded to trail building in the, in the nineties and where it is at today and how it being a stark contrast. You've been a PTA member and then board member for quite a few years now. What have you seen change even within the industry from the, your perspective in terms of the PTBA and everything else, you know, from when you got first involved with that side of things to today? Um, that's a good question. I was just thinking about that a little bit before our call, thinking that would probably come up. And um, so I think the year we joined was either 20. 20- 12 or 2013. I can't exactly remember. And it's funny, this is my like true confessions thing. A couple years prior, I had heard about the PTBA, I think, but I didn't know anything about it. I came across it online or something and I thought, oh, this is cool. Maybe we can apply and be part of this or whatever. And I fired off an email like, hey, you know, we've been building trails this long. This is my resume, blah, blah, blah. Can we have in? And I got back an email that was about all the different things you had to do to get in and like, this box and that box. And I was kind of rolled my eyes and I was like, yeah, whatever. We don't need that. Like if I've worked trails this long and I can't get into this, like, I'm not sure. There just, there weren't that many venues where like a, a level of trail competency that was being vetted actively even existed. So I didn't even think about it. I was like, yeah, whatever. They don't want me. I'm, it's going to take that much to be in it. I don't want to bother. Of course. And then you have so much other stuff going on and whatever. So the first change has been just my <laughs> positioning toward it. I, I kind of, I didn't know what even it, it really was. And then by 2012, we'd become um, friends with John Underwood and he was increasing, I think, I can't remember what year he joined, but he kind of revisited and was like, you guys really have to become part of the PTBA. Like this is about professionalizing the industry and setting standards. Cause you know, like a lot of trail builders who've had 
some years of experience, when you see stuff being done poorly, you kind of wonder like, okay, how can we balance getting people interested and developing a larger cadre of trail builders and defenders, but how do we not have it turn into sloppy work or stuff that isn't going to last or whatever? And so John was like, yeah, the PTB is talking about all that stuff. So I revisited it and was like, okay, I see what they're after. They're sort of trying to create a, a culture of professionalism, um, which sometimes sounds a little bit like a dirty word to the, you know, the dirtbag side of the culture. It's like part of the pride of it, at least in the park service a lot was like, oh, we're the like, we're the like scrappy kid sister of the Rangers. We don't need all this like paperwork and standards and all that. We just get out there and bust ass till it's done. So there's a little bit of tension with the word professionalize, at least for some of us who came, I think, out of that that older background. That said, I could totally get on board with the idea of having a way to vet work and know that it was being done right. And that basically the the idea of trail building wasn't getting diluted by it just being like everybody's a trail builder and anybody can scratch in some tread and think it's awesome. And how do we really keep kind of spreading the right kind of ways to build so that things are going to last and are going to bring the whole industry up instead of having it be like kind of a black mark to be, you know, kind of perpetuating shoddy practices. So John sponsored us and I went through the the work of becoming a member and um, it was just great. I remember the first year uh, we went to a conference. It was actually the same year. I, I um, think it was the same year Mike Paso invited me to be a guest speaker because or a keynote speaker because my book had just come out. And um, maybe that's how it happened. John said something like, yeah, they were talking about you. And I was like, you're not even members. Those slackers, they got to be members. So I had our first conference was I gave the keynote and then I had to stand up front with my business partner and defend why we should be members of the TTBA. So it was kind of funny timing, but it was great actually to be in a room of that many people who were passionate, um, knowledgeable, really skilled in all different areas. And and one of the draws for me was how diverse the ge- geographical spread was because there were people who had, you know, different areas of expertise that came from different parts of the country and communities that were in different levels of maturity as far as trail planning and funding went. So yeah, it turned into a really great uh, introduction to a community that I've been really proud to be a part of. And I think just increasingly, I can't remember when I exactly was, I was on the board, but maybe 2014 to 2019 or 20, something like that. And just seeing every year the amount of firms applying to become members was like, I mean, I, the word exponential is overused, but it was definitely more than doubling, uh, you know, years and years after. And, you know, not everybody was the right fit. Some people, either they weren't specialized enough in actual trail specific stuff, or maybe they weren't quite up to speed with the portfolio, or they needed a little more mentoring or whatever. But um, a lot of really solid companies that have become really active members now. And it's been really cool, cool to see the the international part blooming as well. People from, I think, almost every continent now. I don't know if we have an African country, actually. I've been off the board now for a few years, so I'm not directly monitoring the applications quite as closely. In any case, a lot of international uh, growth as well. And that's been really, really gratifying to see. This next thing will be kind of skipping ahead, but then we're going to go back. You know, Speaking of international growth, in 2023, the conference is, is slated to be in Reno, and it's not just a PTBA conference. It's also including American Trails and I believe the World Trails. 
or something mm-hmm. along those lines. Mm-hmm. You know, and I know you're not on the board anymore, but can you speak to that at all? I think, I mean, I have, I'm of two minds about it. Sometimes I like best the small, just the PTBA conferences where it's only us because it feels like the tribe, you know, it's like, oh, there's 110 companies and maybe 200 people. And it just feels like pulling up a seat around the campfire with all the people who are doing exactly what you're doing. So I think there's something really valuable about that. On the other hand, there's something really exciting about having it opened up to everybody who's involved in trails from all angles, whether it's advocacy or funding or lobbying or, um, you know, municipalities and and, um, agencies to professionals, contractors and everything in between. It's a a lot bigger group. And I guess maybe the introvert in me always likes like two or three people in a conversation better than like a room of 30 people. But that said, there's something really invigorating about seeing how the trails world is increasingly being taken really seriously. And that, you know, I, I remember back to you know, my years in Glacier for sure, but then also early on in contracting and business world where people are like, wait, what? The trail builder? What the heck is that? Like, what do you even do? And you try to explain, well, I mean, we do a little bit of everything, like, <laughs> you know, a little bit of a mechanized operator, a little bit of a engine tinkerer, a little bit of, of a plumbing and drainage, a little bit of civil engineering, a little bit of surveying, a little bit of public, you know, public, uh, planning and kind of interfacing a little bit of mapping a little you know you just sort of list all the stuff that is part of your your job profile and now i think that's just a lot more widely known like now i, I have it way less where i'm like on an airplane or something and somebody's like what do you do and i'm like oh i'm a trailblazer and they're like oh yeah like we've been so psyched that this certain thing just happened in our community whether it's you know new single track system or a rails to trails thing or a new bridge over a pedestrian crossing that allows some sort of school connectivity or whatever. Everybody has something to say about trails and they totally make sense that you could be a trail builder. So that part has been really fun to see it have take on a kind of, um, I don't know, just a kind of mainstream respect in a way that not just the ego part of it, like, oh, I'm in a cool job, but but more than that, that I think trails are incredibly valuable and they bring people of different types and circles together and they promote, you know, all kinds of different wellness. And so it's, it's just very gratifying to see people taking that seriously. Yeah. And staying on the the topic of the PTBA, when I reached out to Aaron Kay about both you and Dawn in terms of like getting some kind of background information, what, what she would like to hear, she had mentioned that, and you had also mentioned just a few minutes ago that you'd been on the board for like five plus years what you didn't mention is that you were staying on the board until you, another female came on or another woman came on the board, <laughs> you know, and yeah. I think that's a super important thing. Let's, let's talk about that a little bit because not only did one woman come on the board and with Dawn, but there's actually two women on the executive committee of the PTB yeah. now. Yeah. It's funny because I, you know, I didn't think about it at first. I just, I got on the board just cause they needed a person and I was interested and I do feel really strongly about visibility uh, for any minorities, you know, it's said a lot like, oh, if you can see it, you can be it. And so it's really important to me that um, when people look at the trail building world, people see somebody who has shows them a path forward that I could do that too. And so, um, yeah, I stayed on the board. Mike Paso was the um, director at the time. And actually, I didn't mention that's one cool connection with the, with the larger group when the PTBA and 
and all the other organizations come together, American Trails, that might pass us still involved with that. So it seems like a little bit like a connected piece because I still think of him as PPGA connected because he was my uh, first entry into the board. But um, yeah, so I always, then Aaron came on as a, our interim, wasn't called the director, but I can't remember what, but made herself so invaluable and was so excellent at managing all the different roles we would throw at her that we quickly realized she was an executive director for sure. So I had always had it in my mind. Yeah, I don't want to leave until somebody else is ready to step up sort of masthead or whatever has another woman on it. Not to lump all women together. I don't think we all have the same concerns or the identical style. I'm not so much about like singling out a woman for any particular reason other than the visibility angle so that people see when they look to trail builders and know that anybody can do it. All kinds of people can do it. I ho- I'd love to at some point have more ethnic and nationality diversity as well. But um, we start with what we can get. So I jokingly said before I left the board, I'm like, dang it, like now fine, I need a break. So now I have Don, Aaron and Aaron, Aaron Amadon and Aaron Kay and Don Packard. And now I want to be on the board because they're all so cool. And like now I talk myself into being off because I had another woman to step in. So I jokingly think I kind of boxed myself into a corner with that one. Yeah, it's been really great. And I mean, I, I, I'm, I remember meeting Erin Amadon um, when I first came on. She was working with Peter Jensen and hadn't started her own business yet. But she was, you know, one of the first fellow women trail builders I've met who'd been doing it a long time and had a lot of um, technical skill. And I remember being really glad to meet her um, when I first came on. I think Susan Stormer was um, around and uh, Dawn hadn't had kind of taken a little bit of a hiatus. So I hadn't met her yet, but I had heard about how legendary she was. and. Then when she came back into involvement, I was really glad to kind of overlap with her a little bit on my way out. And I'm, I can't wait to hear your interview with her because uh, a lot of us really look up to her. She was a bit of a trailblazer without even really meaning to be just in the sense of, yeah, putting herself out there and taking on roles and in a very undramatic way that Dawn has. She's not, she's not on Instagram hashtagging her badass, whatever, blah, blah, blah. She's just doing the work. And I have to say, that's my biggest thing. You know, people always are like, oh, women in trail building, whatever. I don't know. I mean, I'll be the happiest when we don't have to talk about women in trail building. We just talk about trail builders, they're men, they're women, they're whatever age, whatever color. I'm actually less interested in the kind of like, oh, cool, lady with a chainsaw. Like, that doesn't really interest me. I I can't wait until that's no big deal. And that's what I am working for with teaching girls and women and trying to be vocal about where I think, you know, all of us have a place to be. I'm glad you use the word, the term legendary when describing <laughs> Dawn, because I used the term legendary after reading her bio that I, which was an extensive bio, much bigger than the one you can find on the PTBA website mm-hmm. that I got from Aaron Kay. Mm-hmm. And she was super humble about like me even calling her legendary, but it truly is legendary with the stuff she's done. Yeah. Well, and the most legendary people don't like to be called that. I always joke, you know, it's like if somebody's like hashtag legendary, you're like, nah, you're not. (laughs) Well, and that's exactly what came to mind when she's like, I'm not legendary. And in my mind, I'm like, yeah, but everyone that's legendary doesn't actually act, doesn't think that they're legendary. Like they're just the ones doing the work. Yep, exactly. Yep. So that was, that was another, that was, I didn't vocalize that part, but that was the first thing that popped into my head. Yeah. When she kind of was like, well, I'm just, you know, here doing my thing, you know? Yep. Yep. That's awesome. Yeah. 
I think it really is, you know, like there are so many barriers to succeeding in the construction world in general. I mean, a lot of small construction companies, male or female, wherever you are, don't don't last. It's takes a lot of effort and expertise and kind of willingness to live with uncertainty. And, um, you know, I think a lot of people don't realize that when you add being a woman in a pretty male centric space, there are extra stressors that come with that, that we don't talk a lot about. It's not like, oh, cry me a river. It's more just like, yeah, okay. Like you got to always be willing to prove yourself. You got to, and, you know, in states like, you know, North Dakota and parts of Alaska and, you know, it, it can be even more that those tensions can be even more um, prominent. Although I also do think Alaska has some interestingness in, in the sense that it, the rugged DIY culture, there's also a lot more room. There's a lot of good old boy up here, but there's also a lot more room. I mean, women have been making their own way up here, building cabins and mushing dogs and ice fishing and single parenting and everything else you can think of for so many eons that it's almost easier up here to be, you know, it's like if you run a chainsaw, you're not, you're not, it's not like some crazy thing. Like you walk into a saw shop and there may have been a woman in there before you. Whereas like when I'm in urban Michigan, that's less likely. It feels a little bit more like an anomaly. So there, you know, it's, it's complicated for sure. But Dawn coming up as she did, you know, really one of the only ones, I think she probably had a lot more of that kind of silent stressors <laughs> than, than she even admits to. So she's, she's really remarkable in a lot of ways. Yeah. And, and staying on the topic of, of women in trail building, at the 2022 Bentonville PTBA conference, there was a women's gathering. I know. I was so bummed I missed it. Oh, I was going to well, we, we can cut this part out then. I was going to oh, say, no, that's what, did, okay. what did you think of the women's gathering? You know, Well, and, actually, I didn't go to it because I didn't, I didn't get to go to Bentonville. I was so bummed. This was one of those uh, post COVID airline boondoggles where like getting from a small town in Healy to getting to a small town in Arkansas. And we had like three or four different legs of flights and one of them got delayed anyway, blah, blah, blah. It's a long story, but we weren't able to make it in time to make it worth it. It was like, we were going to get in the last evening. So I had to pull the plug. And then I, after the fact, I wrote, dang, I missed that gathering. And I saw a picture of it later. Um, actually, one of my employees, one of my, our female employees went down and got to go to it. And it was like a room full of like, I don't know, 25, 30 people maybe. And it was just warmed my heart. <laughs> yeah, it was. It was. I mean, I, I was at the conference. I obviously wasn't part of the women's gathering because I'm not a woman. Yeah. But I, but I will say that it was a, there's a pretty fair amount of representation from women mm -hmm. there. And it's, I don't know, I think it's awesome to see. And yeah, yeah, I do too. I think it's, it's really, it's cool on a lot of levels. I mean, Partly it's cool for the women who get to do it. I can't tell you how many times actually I had, I think my first version of this was when I was in Glacier and I was working on a crew hiking in uh, out of some hitch, carrying a rock bar and like filthy and Carhartts that are like almost unrecognizable because they're so dirty. And this lady's coming up the trail from the trailhead in her white sneakers and her white hair. She must've been 70, maybe. I'm like 26 and like in the prime of my life coming out with my all female crew that I was on at that time, three of us. And she st stopped aside and she was tearing her. She's like, Oh, can I stop you? And her eyes were like wet. And they, you know, we would have a lot of tourist interaction in the front country in Glacier. So we'd get kind of not hardened, but kind of like, okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. We want to get to the bar, take our boots off, whatever. And she was like, I hope you're enjoying this because I would have loved to get to do that. 
And I just had this pang of like, oh, what wasn't available to someone who was 20, 70 years, 50 years ago, and how much that's changed. And that I really always have her in my mind when I think of why I keep bringing to light, like women need to be here. Women need to be told they belong here. Women need to not be singled out because they're here, but just treated like there's every right for them to be part of it. You know, part of it is the little girl who I meet who is excited to learn the difference between a nail and a screw and a bolt. And she wants to know which one you'd use when. And the other thing I hold is that seven-year-old lady who was like, dang, I would have loved to do that. And I just, there wasn't any place for me. Yeah. Those are my, my two little older <laughs> uh, people that I hold in mind when I think about the whole issue. Do you have, in all the time that you spent doing trail work, do you have a favorite tool or that you like to use? Like something that you're like when this, yeah. when doing this type of work comes up, like you, you jump on it. Yeah. I have three answers to that, that I've tried over the years. So we'll see which one you like best. One is my foot. If, if I could find the one thing I reach for more in trail building, it's my foot. I'm always like, you know, soften the edge, kick loose the three quarter bench, like stomp the berm, like test the, how steep is the, deep is the rock? Like jump on the shoulder of your shovel, like whatever it is. I use my foot all the time. I wear out boots like constantly. So that's one. If I'm going to go with traditional tools, I really like to heavy grubbing, like a mattock or like a kind of a rugged rogue hoe. I really love for grubbing. But my my answer that I have come to most recently is my favorite tool is the right tool for the job. <laughs> One of the things I love about trail building is how in an hour of building bench, say, like you might use one tool to do all of it if you have to, or you might use six tools to make each thing more efficient, depending on what you have. And I love that about trail building where you're like, oh, I wish I had a chainsaw, but I can make do with a lopper and a, a handsaw. Or I wish I had a Pulaski, but I can use a hatchet in my foot. Or I wish I had a whatever, you know what I mean? It's always, I mean, short of like, I guess an excavator, it's kind of like, if you want like a 12 foot reach that can pick up like 80 pounds, that's pretty much the only thing you have. But, but you know what I mean? Like part of the coolness of trail building is finding the right tool for the job that's available from what you have. So that's my, my not so short answer is um, whatever's the most efficient that you can get to easily. I like the foot. <laughs> okay. You vote for the foot. <laughs> I've never thought of it that way, but you're right. Like I've never, yeah. I've, I mean, like even when I was like, when I was in, the middle of remodeling my house. Like I wore steel toed boots all the time because I used my foot to pick up sheetrock. Right. Yeah. Oh, totally. Yeah. The foot as a, as like a, you know, your prop, you have your arms full and then you can step on the rake to get the handle to come up to your hand. And yeah, it's just endless. I, I love the foot, not to mention all the hiking and jumping in and out of, you know, equipment and test kicking the tires of things. And yeah, it's endless. <laughs> yeah. Let's move into your book. What prompted you to become a writer and then specifically write a book called Dirt Work about trail building and your <laughs> experiences with trail building? Um, well, I've, it sounds cheesy to say, but I, I think I've always been a writer. I, I was a really a big reader as a kid and I you know, told stories to my siblings in the back of the family road trip vehicle. And I have little books that I wrote and stapled together when I was like eight, you know, in grade school. And I've always just had an attentiveness to language and the world and wanting to describe things. And so that's, I think, a bit of an innate interest. And then I, you know, studied 
in college and eventually in graduate school, kind of more intentionally the craft of it. And I wrote short stories and essays and stuff for years. And then as the dirt work started coming into sort of started arising as a book, it was interesting, actually, I started writing the first pieces of it. I never wrote about Montana when I lived there. I don't think I ever wrote anything really about trail building or, or anything that I can think of. And then I went to grad school in Alaska and I started writing these little bits about, about Montana. And um, I started realizing like, well, oh, I think I might, I might want have something to say about trail work. So I just, not a lot of pressure just now and then when I would think about it, I would be like, I'm going to write about the packers or I'm going to write it for a page about like what kind of lunch you pack or, you know, I'm going to write for a page or two about like, how do you, what steps do you take to make a face cut or whatever, kind of just keeping it really open and not, not intentional around it as a book. And it just gradually started to seem like it might be a book. <laughs> so I didn't at all intend to write a memoir. I, I still, sometimes I think of it less as a memoir, even though there, there's a, a definite thread in the book that's about me, about my kind of the narrative of me starting as a rookie and investing in it and becoming a long-term committed trails professional. Um, that was mostly used just as an entry point for readers to kind of have somebody to follow along. What I was really interested in was the subculture, this weird world where we, you know, have all of these competencies and expertise and skills, yet no specific degree. People come to it. I've worked on trail crews with people who were like a PhD in GIS and somebody else who was like a costume designer for the Minnesota Minneapolis Opera. And like, I have a background in philosophy. My husband has a BFA in art. And then we have somebody else who's like, I'm in forestry and I'm a geologist. And I was just fascinated by all the different paths that can feed into it. And then adding in the elements about working in wild places and the history of different lands and animals and plants and weather and yeah just kind of all took off into this big kind of multi-shaped thing that I really think of as kind of an homage to a to a subculture so it is definitely a subculture and right now I'm going to do a shout out to a couple of my favorite trail builders who come from a community known as Grand Rapids Michigan really Oh. And they're gonna know they're gonna know who they are. The uh nice. there's a there's a there's a couple people that either currently work for rock solid trail contractors or formerly worked for rock solid trail contractors and have gone on their own. Nice and and grew up in Grand Rapids. Wow, that's so awesome. There's a there's a subculture to the subculture within Grand Rapids that became trail builders. Yeah. Oh man, what I wouldn't have given to known a trail builder when I was like 10 years old in 1983. And we used to jokingly call it bland vapids because there was so little happening. Like, I mean, if you had told me when I was 11 that there would be like a microbrewery and like a stand up paddleboard club and like all that, I would have been like, no way. This is like, <laughs> you know, a drab little Midwestern city with where everybody goes to church and like, I can't wait to get out of here. And it's been really cool. I mean, my family still lives there. And, um, my parents are both born and raised Western Michigan. My, my, actually, my mom is from the Netherlands, but immigrated to Holland, Michigan, which Michiganders will know on the lake. And my dad grew up on Lake Michigan and Grand Haven. And so I have, I still have a big anchoring family uh, and attachment to, especially the um, the shores of Lake Michigan. So um, I'm actually going to be back in Grand Rapids in just a couple a week or so visiting my folks. And um, yeah, it makes me so happy now to know that people are getting more ways to explore the natural spaces there and move their bodies and have good trails. It's like, yeah, 
if I could go backwards, I would have had it happen sooner, but better than never. <laughs> I know they'll be listening to this too, because they're avid podcast listeners as well. So. Oh, great. Thumbs up for the, big, the great update. Yeah. Well, before we close this thing out, do you have any closing comments, words of wisdom, pieces of advice, whatever it is you want to leave the listener with that is specific to stuff you've learned in the, in the field or in trail building, which is why we're all here, right? Yeah. Yeah. Boy, I always get really bad when people ask me to give advice because I, I have a personality that resists advice. <laughs> I'm always like, come on, give me information and let me figure it out. But um, no, honestly, I, I, I think the, one of the biggest things I, I, ask, I get asked to speak at times to school groups, high schoolers and um, like shop classes and, and stuff like that. And one of the things I just think is really important, I mean, I think it's applicable to adults too, but especially to teenagers is I wish I had had more sense at that age that like there was so much about the world that I didn't know that I could end up having a career and something I didn't even know existed yet. So, you know, when, when I teach or, or mentor or have crew members who are that age, that's always what I try to just model for them. It's like, man, the world is so fascinating that you could end up being a trail builder when you didn't even know what that was like <laughs> wanting people to be able to feel free to try things and put themselves in positions where they don't necessarily have any expertise just to see what might, might come from that. I think the biggest, like the richest experiences and paths that I've had have come from that. Just putting myself outside of what I thought was the comfortable space and seeing what arose. And I think it doesn't seem like we do that very well for kids anymore. Like I think there's a lot of pressure for them to specialize and commit and know what you want really early. And I think especially the kind of omnivorous kind of jack of all trades quality of the trails profession brings that home even more that like, just keep yourself open, learn everything you can find good mentors and just don't shut yourself down too early. That is so true. Especially if you look at kids and like athletics. Yeah, I know. Just let them move their bodies however they want. And eventually they'll find the way that's right for them. Yeah. 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 Well, Christine. So that's my advice. You tricked me into it. <laughs> Good. I'm glad I was able to trick you into some advice. <laughs> but my biggest thing with advice that I always say to students, uh, writing students is, okay, now you got me to give your advice. So just remember, it's advice, not a command. You, the thing you should always do with advice is listen to it and then decide whether it applies or not. So you might throw it out the window and decide, yeah, no, I know what I want to do. So whatever the case may be. Another excellent piece of advice, <laughs> <laughs> which is so true. Yeah. Well, Christine, I hope you continue to enjoy your, your trip to the East. Thanks. And that we yeah, can get I mean, this lined up in a time zone that was semi-close to it. The other one. Yeah. Now we're only an yeah. hour apart versus I don't even know. What is the time zone difference between here in Alaska? Uh, East coast in Alaska is four hours. Four hours. So yeah, it's, it's just one hour further West than Pacific. Yeah. So it, it is a little unwieldy when you, you know, you get emails from somebody that they wrote like half a day ago and you're like barely awake yet. And you're like, oh man, I'm already behind. <laughs> but uh, no, it's been, it's been a great uh, pleasure. And thanks a ton for asking me and having me and also for spotlighting women trail builders in general. In addition to just all the other content, I hadn't heard of the blog before Aaron connected us about this. And so now I'm looking back through all of the ones that are 
archived and I'm like, oh man, I've got like a year's worth of stuff to listen to. So it's very, very cool. Thanks for your interest. Well, thank you for that. And I have been pretty, in, really intentional on covering diversity as much as I can and covering the female side of things as much as I can, because I, I mean, I'm primarily a mountain biker and I do think that's one of the things that mountain biking does offer is a, a pretty open pathway to bringing people of all different backgrounds and types together totally. with that common yep. thread. Mm-hmm. And that's what makes what we do so incredible is because we can come from all these different places, but yet have this common bond. Right? Yep. Yeah. That's been the upside of the pandemic for me is seeing how I think the sense of lockdown and inside entrapment has really made people of all types value their access to public lands even more. And uh, I've seen a huge um, burgeoning in Alaska in the the kinds and types and stripes and varieties of people who are all starting to feel like this is a priority and I belong here. And so I think the fact that the culture is shifting to certainly not anywhere near where we can be, but is shifting for sure in the direction of open and and less about like, you got to be the cool kid with this hat and this bike and this amount of money more to like, how can we all find ways to move that are available to us with whatever our, our, um, you know, whatever options we have open to us. That's been an incredibly uh, rewarding thing to see in the last, you know, number of years. Yeah, that's, it is awesome. So, well, again, I thank you very much for your time on this. I know we had to schedule it the best we could and it's, it's awesome that you could, could make time for this. And I really, really, really appreciate that. Thanks, Josh. Likewise. Thanks for working with me to figure it out. And uh, thanks for the project overall. I, uh, I look forward to hopefully seeing you at the next conference. <laughs> well, I'll be in Reno. We were, I was already talking about that with Dawn. In fact, Dawn brought up, side note quick, Dawn brought up that the first PTBA conference that she went to was in Reno. Yeah, I think it was a kind of a, um, it was pre-PTBA. a location for a long time because that was, it was the, you know, easy spot for the Northwest and cheap hotels. And yeah, I remember Jerry Wilbur talking about it like Reno's like the baseline. Like we got to compare how it could be to Reno. Yeah. Okay. Cool. Well, hopefully I'll see you there. Yeah. Thank you for listening. Links for the various topics discussed in the show can be found in the show notes. If you like what you've heard, please take the time to share these shows with others. Sharing these shows will help create awareness of both the guests who have taken the time to be on the show and the podcast series itself. Also, if you're new to the TrailFact podcast, check out our ever-expanding library of episodes. Please don't forget to leave a rating interview, as this is one of the best ways to show your support for the TrailFact podcast. I'd also like to thank all of the listeners who have signed up to be supporters of TrailFact through Patreon. These actions mean a lot to me. With that, the value for value concept is something that has caught my attention. If you find value in the Trail Effect podcast, you now have a way to provide value for that value via Patreon for Trail Effect. This podcast has been edited and produced by Evolution Trail Services. For more information about Evolution Trail Services, go to www.evotrails.com. Also check out our new website, traileffectpodcast.com, with effects spelled E-A-F-F-E-C-T. If you have ideas on future communities or people to feature in Trail Effect, please don't hesitate to reach out by emailing evolutiontrails at gmail.com. Thank you again for listening.